Let us pray. O God, because without you or we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so if you do not have this lovely hardcover catechism, uh, I've got 50 new copies as of today, and I'll hand you one. If you were at Christ Church 101 and you got the gray one, which I refer to as the gray market catechism, I'll trade you. <laughs> this is better. <laughs> you, can, you can keep that if you want, but uh, I'll trade you, so thank you. <laughs> you, can, you can keep it. Okay, good. All right. If you don't have this, there's a box up there it's full of them, uh, and we can hand one to you. But this is... Oh, people, we're going to keep having people coming in. Okay, let me see. You probably got the gray version. You need this. (laughs) Okay, no problem. All right. So a couple introductory notes before we get started. this, this class is simply called Catechesis, um, and we've, we've uh, sort of kept that name for lack of a better term because it's a good term. It, uh, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful word, and I hope to familiarize it with you over the course of this year. Um, first things first, uh, for this class, you need to bring an open heart and an open mind. Uh, you also need to bring this catechism, uh, which is uh, put out by the Anglican Church of North America as of 2019. This is kind of our, uh, our official, this is our official catechism, uh, and I'll say more about that here in a bit. And it's also very helpful, people find, to bring a Bible as well, or your iPhone or Android app that has a Bible or whatever it is you uh, use to read a Bible with. Um, but you'll note that if you just open a page, you'll see constant reference to Scripture. There are times when we will not read those readings, uh, read those references. Actually, most of the time we won't do that. That's for your benefit so that if you'd like to, you can sort of look them up as we go, although we might look them up from time to time. Um, How did I get involved in all this craziness, right? This is not normal activity for a church of any kind whatsoever to read a catechism together. How did this happen? Well, in 2019, and in fact, as far back as 2008, um, I was involved in a uh, cabal of young clergy uh, who had this wild-brained idea that we needed to restore uh, the practice of the ancient catechumenate to the church today. Um, this has happened in lots of uh, places within the church. Uh, you may be familiar with the Roman Catholic program, RCIA. That's kind of a rite of Christian initiation of adults. Uh, and it's a catechumenate for today. I'm going to define all these terms in a bit. Um, but but uh, it was in reading uh, the church fathers and reading the practices of the ancient church that we sort of said, you know what's really fallen by the wayside in, in recent years is this teaching, this fully, full-throated teaching of Christian doctrine. How do we do that again? How do we get that back? Uh, because we were reading all kinds of books at the time. Uh, um, among them, uh, and you may have seen this years ago, but uh, Christian Smith's book, um, Soul Searching. Anyone kind of interested in sociology. Uh, this has become an, an older book now. It was uh, based on the 2005 study of youth and religion, um, but this book is devastating, and it, and it raises this basic question, like, why are American youth heretics? <laughs> and, and, and the answer is this. It's because it's what their churches are teaching. 
Um, and so we started to really work on this. This was first the work of youth ministers, but it became adopted by the province as a committee called the, the ACNA Task Force for Catechesis. And, you know, in, in the wild west of, of the ACNA, somebody thought it was a good idea to, to, to put me in, the, in, the, uh, in this committee. And uh, so that was how it was. And um, I became the vice chair of the committee, began working very heavily with this. Um, and it was in uh, 2010 that the bishops asked us to write a catechism. Um, and uh, that was a task that we were not excited about, but they knew they needed it and we knew they needed it. But, <laughs> but so we started on it and uh, it took uh, several years to get, to get down. And uh, finally, uh, we have this wonderful text that's in front of you. Um, when I came to Carey's Church in 2014, um, there were people in the parish who said, well, there wasn't even a, it was just a, look, seven years ago, Christ Church was so small that you could fit everything the church owned in two Rubbermaid bins, okay? So that was, that was how it was. And those people said, you need to teach us the catechism that you have written, and I said, well, I didn't write it. We wrote it as a committee, but, you know, they said, but, but you have to teach us. And so I said, okay. And uh, we started gathering people together, and we've been doing it ever since. Uh, study of the catechism has become a part of Christ Church's life. And, and here's what I'll say about it. One is this. Most churches, most churches, congregations, do not have a place to learn basic Christian doctrine. Right? It's sort of assumed that you maybe got it by osmosis somewhere along the line. It's assumed that maybe you picked it up at some point. It's assumed that maybe you read, like, some good book, you know, that had all that in there. Um, maybe it's just assumed that you've read Scripture and you understand it perfectly, right? Uh, now, all of those are bad assumptions, and uh, they need to be dispelled. But, but here's the reality. The reality is that uh, most um, self-professed Christians today are, how can I put this, anemic with regard to their understanding and grasp of basic Christian doctrine. So um, this is what this course is about, but I think you'll find that it's about a lot more than doctrine. Um, doctrine sort of has a, a, a rough connotation today. Uh, I don't think that's right, but, but it's basically this, that um, we're going to spend time studying the Apostles' Creed as the rule of faith, the Lord's Prayer as the rule of prayer, and the Ten Commandments as the rule of, as the rule of living, right? Basic uh, Christian morality. Um, why do I think this is essential? Well, I think it's essential because, uh, because um, this is bread and butter stuff. I mean, these are the basics. Um, I've often had conversations with people who said, why do we have to learn things like that? That doesn't make sense. And these are like, these are like Christian pastors and priests. You know, you're like, why do we do that? That sounds really boring. It's like, okay, so try studying geometry having never taught the Pythagorean theorem. Is the Pythagorean theorem boring? Well, maybe on the face, but is it essential to understanding geometry? You bet it is. Okay, do I want people designing airplanes who don't know the Pythagorean theorem? Not in your life, okay? Uh, in the same way, I don't want Christians uh, coming up and being called mature when they don't know the basics, right? Um, and so that's one thing that I want to get down the floor. The other thing that I want to say is that, look, for all the teaching on doctrine, Part of this can seem like, oh, they're just kind of teaching what, what we believe. Well, that's fine. Um, but I think you'll find that this is very refreshing to your spiritual life as well, um, that, that there's something about being grounded in Christian doctrine that leads to a flourishing Christian life. Um, let's say a word about this word catechesis. Um, catechesis from, comes from the Greek word katecheo, 
Um, it appears four times in the New Testament, and each time it is with force. Uh, my favorite is when Paul um, is writing to the Corinthians, and he says this, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct, catechize, catecheo is the word he uses, others than 10,000 in a tongue. So he's deriding them for their desire to speak in tongues, and he's saying, look, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. Some of you come out of Pentecostal backgrounds, and you're sitting there like, yes, yes, preach. You know? <laughs> but, but here's the reality. The reality of it is that um, that this is, this is hard practice. Like, it's not easy to be precise in your words. Um, it takes a, a grasp of language. It also takes a grasp of, of this ability to kind of reach into hearts and minds and, and, and teach. But here's the joy of it. The joy of it is that in the Greek, this word actually refers to uh, like an echo, right? You can actually hear the word echo in catechesis, right? It's, it's actually there. Catecheo is in that word. Um, and it refers to resounding. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite catechists, Cyril of Jerusalem, refers to this as, um, as the word bouncing around in a dark place. He says, when you were catechumens, you were empty, and the, the word resounded within you. Why? Because human beings are made to resound the glory of God. That's who we are. And he says, basically, you were empty, and the Word resounded in you, and now that you are baptized, and now that you are Christians, you are, uh, the, the Word is thick in you, right? Um, and so, this is, the, uh, this, is the, this kind of tradition. Um, to break it down even further, uh, catechesis is the practice of catechesis, right? It's the practice of teaching. Um, a catechism is a book, right? It's a guide for this. Um, and these actually are a late addition in the church's history. These are a... Uh, uh, 16th century, uh, well, Martin Luther came up with these. And it's like, hey, how do you really fix theological errors and a ton of people all at once? Propaganda, right? So you put out this, you put out this catechism, right? And and it and it corrects the errors. In fact, Martin Luther says uh, in his in his introduction to his catechism that that the people uh, in Germany of his day are like swine. They don't know how. Uh, how uh, mucky and muddy they actually are, um, how little they actually know, right? Um, now, Martin Luther was famous for not being terribly uh, kind, but, but catechisms were the result of a grand demand for Christian teaching. And it was actually uh, because of the Protestant practice of, of, of catechesis that Catholics started producing their own catechisms, okay? Um, why is this important? Well, it's important because many, most of us grew up in the American Sunday school system, which was meant to actually do something radically different than catechesis. Um, Sunday schools came about um, because urban youth were not going to school. And so the idea was, well, we must educate them in reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, this came about in Ireland, in, in industrial Ireland. And once mandatory compulsory high school education came to, this, uh, came to the West, um, in the Great Depression, um, well, it made all of that irrelevant, didn't it? So what did Sunday schools become? It basically became off-duty school teachers teaching whatever they thought, you know, these young people needed to learn, right? Um, and there are lots of wonderful accounts in history of, of uh, local Sunday school teachers gathering together in coffee clutches and building curriculum for each other, right? So what else does it do? 
the distinctives of Christian doctrine by denomination, by church, are lost. A lot of that confessional identity is lost um, because now you have one curriculum, one size fits all for all churches in a community. And this actually turns into an even more uh, pernicious problem, which is that uh, Sunday school curricula become uh, a commodity that basically is uh, bought and sold and traded and all kinds of things. Um, and lots of churches that I've served in the past had this, you know, it was a $80 a month membership to David C. Cook. And one of the first things I did in a parish was say, okay, well, that's over, right? And then the reason it's over is that, uh, that um, what was lost in that was this idea that, uh, that the teaching of Christian doctrine is actually falls to the, the, the local pastor or priest of a congregation. Um, and so I've said, I'm going to do that. So that's going to be like the first foray into the life of Christ church. And that's actually been a wonderful fruit-bearing thing. So, y'all set? I think you're going to, so let me just say this, nothing that we talk about in this class is anything but basic, okay? It's just basic. Like, there are brothers fellows in here, you all, you all are going to fly into the heights of theological contemplation, and we're going to have to kind of pull you down with a string, but there's something wonderful about the basics, right? Um, some of you serve, are in academic disciplines where, uh, where you go back to the very basics and you sort of think like, wow so amazing, so amazing. Uh, very often on Sundays, uh, in this, right before this class, we'll sing together, and I'll tell you why we sing. We sing, Jesus loves me in four-part harmony. And by the way, there are four verses, and they're beautiful. And I just sort of glory in, how is it this song that I learned when I was two still resonates deeply? Um, so there's that. Now, you'll note that I'm going to make you do silly things only once, which is to stand and sing a hymn. And the reason is this, that um, there's, a, there's a kind of important formative reason for that. And the, and the reason, and I just want to give it away all at once, is this, that when you sing, the empathy centers of your brain light up like a Christmas tree. Did you know this? So, Look, uh, those of you who are not married, uh, if you ever want to uh, woo someone, sing to them. Because they're, they're, the, the part of their brain that is associated with empathy and love and understanding someone else's feelings is what? It's just lit up like crazy. Um, that's why we write love songs. That's who we are as human beings, right? Um, and so something happens when we sing together. Christian singing together is actually an amazing thing. Uh, you'll notice that what, what, what just happened, and the reason I picked that particular hymn is this. We were listening to each other. Did you notice that? We had to in order to sing the harmonies, right? There's something, there's something really deep happening here, which is that we're opening ourselves up to other people, um, and this is, a, is an immense, immensely good thing. Um, Christians cannot go to a text like this de novo by themselves. It doesn't work. Um, but if we do it as a group and we, we ask questions and we work through these things, um, it's, it's quite helpful. Now, here's how it works. I'm going to skip this year. Some years I've done it, other years I won't. Um, there's a wonderful introduction called Salvation, um, and it's questions one through, I think it is uh, 17, and we're just going to skip that this year. Um, if you would like to read that and write, like to read it with me, uh, I'll take you out for coffee and we'll read it, uh, but I'd, I'd rather just kind of push past it this time, uh, not because it's unimportant, but because we get there anyway in the course of the, uh, of the catechism. Um, 
Yeah, do you want their, I've got a bunch of copies up here and you can just kind of come on up, don't worry about it. I'll hand you two. You were at Christchurch 101, so you got the gray market edition. Yeah. You must destroy that, by the way, because it's very illegal, and therefore, that's why it was printed in gray, because a friend of mine that did it, um, well, he's got a flair for the dramatic and decided that a gray market copy should be printed in gray, so there it is. All right. So, let's turn to page 30, and we'll just sort of start off. Here's how catechesis works. Some of you have sat in on this class before, and you know how it works. Uh, I ask the question, and you all respond with the answer. Skip all the notes and parentheses, and uh, skip the, the, the Scripture references. Just read the text of it. Um, and the reason that we do this out loud is to kind of create this uh, atmosphere of participation. Um, the other reason is that I want to stop you right here and say, look, if at any time what is being said makes no sense to you, or you're just wondering openly about something, please feel free to ask questions. Um, catechesis is about, actually, the very core, the asking and answering of questions. Um, and so it's a really big, a really big, a really big part of it. Okay, every section has, a, has an introduction, um, and all of these introductions were written by, uh, by uh, J.I. Packer, kind of the great uh, and late uh, Anglican theologian. Um, it was a great joy to get to know him through this process. Um, and he uh, considered the, the kind of last years of his life as striving to become a catechist. Um, and, uh, and we had wonderful conversations about that uh, aim. But with that, let's jump in. Question 18. What is a creed? A creed is a statement of faith. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. Uh, creeds may be new to some of you. I understand that. It's totally fine. Uh, we'll, we'll break through that. Creeds are um, essentially, as it said here, statements of faith. Um, they uh, hinge on this understanding that Christians, um, almost before everything else, must say, I believe. Now, you'll note, on Sunday mornings, we begin the Nicene Creed here uh, on page 209 by saying not I believe, but we believe. Um, look, there was, a, there was a, a, a nasty little thing, a pernicious thing, depending on your perspective, called the liturgical movement that said, hey, we should all say we instead of I. But for centuries, it was not the case that, that, that was said. It was I believe. Um, but credo in the, in, the, in the Latin means we believe. Um, um, well, no, hold up. Credo means I believe. And so, so the creeds are written to say, I believe. Um, Christian believing is something which is both at the same time personal, right? I believe. And corporate, we believe. So I'm totally fine with coming together and saying, we believe, right? But at the core, when we're studying a catechism, it is very assuredly, I believe. Um, question 19 What is the purpose of the creeds? The purpose of the creeds is to declare and safeguard for all generations essential truths about God, the church, and the world as revealed in Holy Scripture. So I'm going to break this down just a bit. The purpose of the creeds is to declare and safeguard. These are two action verbs that are wonderful. First, what it does is it sets forth a declaratory sentence. Look, I know that declaratory sentences are rare these days. I know that, uh, look, one of, one of my pet peeves, and this shows that I'm a Gen Xer and not a, not a kind of millennial, is this, the interrogative tone. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed this? Right? There's, you, you can't make declaratory sentences. You have to finish everything off with this. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Because there's no kind of, like, 
declaring things to be true. Um, so the creed is a declaratory statement about the nature of the truth, about what the truth is, surround, about God, the church, and the world. So that's the first thing. It sets it forth. It declares it. Secondly, to safeguard. Now you might say, why is it that truth has to be safeguarded? Well, because there are raiders who will, who will uh, raid the storehouse of Christian truth and bend it to their own purposes. This has always been the case. It was the case in the first century. Um, New Testament scholars can, uh, can tell us, and, and in fact, you can read it right in their pages, that there are deceivers about. Um, and, and the thing about deception is that uh, it, it doesn't work very well without a baseline. You kind of have to have some of the truth and sprinkle it with falsehood. It doesn't work otherwise, right? So, uh, so the nature of, of uh, false doctrine in the church has always been uh, not that it has been disconnected completely from Christian doctrine, but that it has restated it in a way that obscures the truth of it. So uh, it's important to have safeguards with clear language. Um, I was reminded yesterday, uh, um, Confucius of all people says, you know, the beginning of wisdom is to use terms use the right words, and use them well. So what a creed does is it basically says, we're going to put forth the exact word that we want to use, and we're going to use it. Um, and I should note, there were century-long debates about individual words in the creeds um, because it was so hotly contested, right? I mean, it was, it was this idea of, well, a lot is on the line here. Um, so we'll talk more about that as, as time goes on. Um, these are essential truths, and they're held forth for all generations. Uh, so we should be reminded that when we talk about the, the, the Nicene Creed, we're talking about a document that was finalized in the year 381 in Constantinople. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I went to Istanbul. It's now Istanbul. I don't know if you heard the song. Uh, but, uh, and you can actually go to the church where it was finished. Um, why is this done? Well, it's for all generations. Um, generational faithfulness matters in the church. Um, to stay true to what we've received matters. We're going to talk about that a lot in this course. Now, what is that truth? Well, it's the truth about God, the church, and the world as revealed in Holy Scripture. So, I think one of the things that Anglicans bring to the table is we say, okay, don't be so fast to say that the creeds are just sort of something which are made up by the church to articulate Christian doctrine in its most es essential form. Um, I actually believe that a reading of the ancient sources says something else, which is that these people believed that they were defending the doctrines of Scripture in the creeds. They read Scripture, and they believed that this was an accurate stating of what Holy Scripture held forth in continuity with, with those who had come before. Um, now, it's very popular these days, especially in historical, critical, and historical theology sections and, and little places in places like Yale Divinity School, uh, to say things like, it was all just sort of made up in the fourth century, and then we got some Constantinian authority and just sort of worked it all to our advantage. Okay, that's garbage. Because if you read third, third century church fathers and second century church fathers and the apostolic fathers, you'll find that there is great continuity in Christian doctrine that continues on into the fourth century. And so these creeds carry forth this tradition of thinking, um, but they just carry it forth in an explicit manner, and I want to be clear about that. Um, the creeds contain the essential doctrines of, of Scripture. 
Um, and, uh, and it's for that reason that I'd say something as well, which is that uh, it's become quite popular for people to today to say there's such a thing as creedal orthodoxy, but rejecting certain parts of creedal Christianity, especially kind of moral commands, things like that. And I would say that you just don't understand what a creed's supposed to do. A creed is supposed to hold forth with clarity what Scripture teaches. And so if you have a faith that's barely creedal, then what's the point? Um, because it's meant to draw you to, to understand Scripture. Here's one of the things I love about this class. People have come to me year after year after year and have said this. They've said, going through that creed section accelerated my reading of Scripture. Do you know why? Because certain questions were just taken off the table, right? Because they were understood to not even be possible within the realm of Christian doctrine. So you just sort of say, okay, well, now I'm going to read it with all of this in mind, and then what are you able to do? To read it rightly. That's an amazing thing that happens. Um, so I want to, want, to, want to say that clearly. All right. What does belief in the creeds signify? Belief in the creeds signifies acceptance of God's revealed truth and the intention to live by it. To reject any element of the creeds signifies a departure from the Christian faith. All right, so let's break this down a bit. Belief in the creed signifies acceptance of God's revealed truth and the intention to live by it. Um, acceptance is, uh, is actually kind of another word for received. Um, in, the, uh, in the baptismal rite that's in the prayer book, we, we ask, do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Old and New Testaments? Um, this is a wonderful uh, turn of a phrase, do you joyfully receive? Well, what's being said here? The question is not, did you sit down in your room and decide that all of this is true? Did you figure it out? No, what's the question? The question is, do you joyfully receive it? Meaning you receive it as a gift. Um, so the creeds are a kind of gift, and the fathers actually talk about the Apostles' Creed in this way. How's it, how is it received? With open hands. Um, um, the, uh, I love Ambrose calls the, the Apostles' Creed um, a, a symbolon, meaning that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sign of our profession. Um, but he goes on to say that it's, it's, it's also very much like, uh, like a corporate stock portfolio. Um, everyone starting the corporation shows up with their own donation. Now, Ambrose believed that each one of the apostles had contributed a line to the Apostles' Creed. Probably didn't happen, but he believed it, so there it is. Uh, and, and that, uh, therefore, they were joint and severally liable for all of the creed, which is an amazing idea, right? It's that um, they, they become uh, sharers in this one faith, and, and Ambrose teaches his people, of whom probably was at one point St. Augustine, um, this you become liable for the whole thing, but you receive it as a gift, right? So, the idea that Christians have isn't, it, isn't like, hey, you know, uh, John comes in in the 20th century, and he decides that line four is a bunch of garbage, and so he's just going to throw it out, right? Because there's no way to do that. Um, skipping a line in the creed is apostasy, and we should say it. We should say that, that to deny one portion of the creed is, is simply what it is. It's, it's apostasy. It's to depart from uh, the Christian faith. And so that's what uh, is said in this last sentence. 
But it also says, it also states our intention to live by it. So every Sunday when we read, when we recite uh, the Nicene Creed, we're not just saying that we believe these things about, about the faith. We're actually saying, I intend to order my life by these things. Um, C.S. Lewis makes this wonderful uh, connection, um, and I believe that it's in his wonderful little introduction to Athanasius on the Incarnation, what it means to keep the faith. He says that, um, that it's, it's, it's essentially putting your whole uh, trust in it, um, which I think is a wonderful phrase. I can't, I can't exactly remember the, the, the terminology he uses, but, but that's the idea, right? It's that um, I, uh, I give myself over to it, um, which is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. All right, question 21. Which creeds has this church received? This church believes the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Now, some of these may be new to you, and I want to kind of uh, break down what they are before we continue on. Uh, the Apostles' Creed comes from uh, uh, really what is a condensation of ancient baptismal creeds. Um, there were numerous baptismal creeds in the ancient church, um, and uh, they, they sort of come together in this glorious way in about the third and fourth centuries. Um, but these were the creeds that you would be given um, on or about the week before you were baptized. It would be recited to you, and you would memorize it. You were not allowed to write it down because these things were uh, sort of, um, well, they were sacred. Um, they, were, they were not to be disclosed. Um, they were in many places called uh, the, the arcani, those things which are sort of hidden. Um, why? Because the idea was we don't want anyone who doesn't understand Christian teaching, who's not been catechized in our way, to grab hold of our essential foundational docu documents, especially the ones that we profess literally as we're being baptized. So in some churches, you would, you would actually... Um, you, having been given the creed, you'd be expected to give it back. How? By reciting it. Um, in other places, this would be actually joined directly to your baptism. So it, it would go something like this. I'll, I'll, use, uh, I'll use Todd as an example. It's like, Todd, do you believe in God the Father? And you would say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I would say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and I would hold you down under the water until you squirm, because it's a sign of death, right? And then I'm going to pull you back up. And then, I, and then someone else would ask you, do you believe in God the Son? And you, would, and you would recite the part of the creed. And of the Son, boom, throw you under the water, hold you down, right? Pull you up when you start to squirm. Uh, what's my point here? The, the point here is that you are literally baptized into the faith that you hold, meaning that there is not, in the ancient church, and I really want to make this point strongly, there is not a contradiction between baptism and faithful believing, okay? Actually, the reality of it is that there's something the Baptists get right, which is this. Baptism was universally understood to be something given to adults um, and to infants if it happened as a dispensation from the norm, okay? So, I want you to get this right, that, that baptism and... Um, and professing the faith go hand in hand. 
They should not be divorced from each other. And I say this as an Anglican, as a faithful Anglican who has had all seven of my children baptized as infants, okay? I say this strongly, that when you and I think about baptism, we need to think about um, an adult who comes to faith for the first time and is baptized into that faith, okay? Um, so is that, is, that, is that helpful to you? I think this is really key because if we're to really understand what, what Scripture is talking about, we really have to understand it as those first Christians understood it. Um, and so this is, this is absolutely key. So that's the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed comes about in the kind of maelstrom of doctrinal distinctions and debates being made in the fourth and fifth centuries. Um, the, the Nicene Creed is completed in the year 381, but it's debated into the fifth century. Uh, and, and there are these wonderful debates which are, uh, well, just wild, right? But they do form what we call Christian orthodoxy. Um, Christian orthodoxy is creedal orthodoxy. There's no distinction between the two. So that's the Nicene Creed. And then finally, the Athanasian Creed, which as best we can tell, doesn't come from St. Athanasius, as much as I wish it had, because that would be cool. Uh, it, it's rather kind of a, a, a like 6th or 7th century Spanish condensation of the teaching of Athanasius. Um, and it really does spell out in great detail uh, the, the Christian doctrines of Christ and Christology. Um, you will hear this creed recited on Trinity Sunday at Christ Church. Um, we, sort of, we do it because we can. Uh, but this was a major creed in Anglicanism in the early parts of, of Anglican history. Um, and it was recited at, on Christmas Day. So can you imagine, like Christmas Day, you go to church and you recite the Athanasian Creed. It's like, you know, pretty lengthy and pretty... Um, not to mean it, but pedantic in a lot of ways. And, and so that's what, that's what our Christmas Day program is going to be. We're all going to recite the, the Athanasian Creed together. But it's an important creed because it, because it defines tightly uh, the person of Christ and defines the relations uh, between the persons of the Trinity very clearly. It spells out Trinitarian doctrine. Okay, so you got that? Now, I should say that this is, uh, this is controversial in a lot of ways because some Christians will say, I don't accept any darn creed, thank you very much. We have scripture, right? Or uh, as the Campbellites will say, uh, no creed but Christ. Or as others will say, um, you know, as well as the Eastern Orthodox Church says, which is the Athanasian Creed is, is not, used, not worth the paper it's written on because we have the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, right? Uh, so there's a lot of this going on, and the question was, do Christians all hold the Athanasian Creed? And I don't want to get into that. All I'll say is this church holds those three, okay? Um, and that's spelled out in our doctrinal uh, affirmations. Okay, but there's a bigger question, and this is the big question. Why do you receive and believe these creeds? I receive and believe these creeds with the church because they are grounded in Holy Scripture and are faithful expressions of its teaching. Now, I'm not trying to spoil it for you, and, and look, some of you may have read that with your fingers crossed saying, oh, I'm not sure I believe that, uh, but, but, but here's the reality. The reality of it is that, uh, that it's my job to teach you that they are grounded in Holy Scripture and, and how and why as we go through the Apostles' Creed as a, as a basis for this. Um, but it's also important to note that we receive and believe these creeds with the church. Um, I say a lot about the church. If people have been at Christ Church for long, you'll know that I preach a lot about the church. I talk a lot about the church. Um, and I believe that, uh, that the church and, and understanding our membership in the church is essential to the Christian life. So to understand, first of all, what the church is, or more importantly, who the church is, <laughs> and our place in her and in it, 
um, is, is essential to really understanding who we are, um, which is, put simply, the body of Christ. Um, and as a body, um, in order for there to be soundness in the body, and in fact, if we're going to speak just in terms of psychology, in order for there to be sanity in the body, there cannot be dissonance between our parts. Um, that the whole church must proclaim the faith. And the creeds enable this. We'll just say that really strongly. Um, and this is why Christians have taught that to depart from the creeds um, is, is apostasy in the most basic sense. Now, I am well aware that there are Christians in this country who wouldn't know a creed from anything else, um, but are still professing Christians, and I don't contest that, right? I just want to be really clear about that. Primarily because they would profess the creed without issue. Um, and there are many who say, well, I know what the creeds are. I don't think they're essential, but I profess everything that's there, right? And I would say, well, you should, because it's, because it's the right thing to profess. Um, you wind up in really uh, um, difficult waters uh, the moment you start to, to depart from these creeds. And I'll give you an example as to why. For years, I was in the habit of being visited by uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'm going to give you a really important thing to know in this class, how to get rid of a Jehovah's Witness from your door, okay? Um, and, and what I started to do was I would open the door, and I'd say, well, it's very nice to meet you. Uh, you're, you're, you're obviously Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, I can see your watchtower pamphlets, etc. Let me just tell you that in this house, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, right? <laughs> and they knew exactly what they were wading into <laughs> at that point. Why? Well, because to be a Jehovah's Witness is to be one who rejects the creedal doctrines, while simultaneously saying that their particular uh, take on Scripture is the right one. Okay, it's, it's divorced from creedal faith. Um, and so, and they'll, they'll sort of sit there for a while stunned, but, but eventually they'll, they'll, they'll move on out because they know that, that, they're not to, that you're not to be trifled with. Um, and uh, anyway, I always hand their pamphlets back. Uh, but try to be as charitable as possible. But sometimes, you know, I wasn't exactly ready to receive guests. Um, okay. Question 23, why should you know these creeds? I should know these creeds because they state the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. All right, so there's a good reason to know them. They state the essential beliefs. Um, now, I would ask you, you know, I think that you probably ought to at some point memorize the Apostles' Creed during this class. Um, you probably ought to memorize the Nicene Creed. If you go out and memorize the Athanasian Creed, I'll be very impressed, okay? Uh, and and I'll, I'll find a way to reward that initiative uh, because I've never seen it done before, and I, I, I probably should. But um, it's just to say that, uh, that what has been classically required uh, for confirmation as an Anglican is to know the Apostles' Creed, um, to know it, meaning commit it to memory. Um, so if you're seeking out confirmation, this is your first kind of assignment, is to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And we Anglicans have a tricky little way of, of memorizing it. Do you know what it is? Some of you Brazosfels are learning it very quickly. It's like we recite it twice a day in the daily office. So if you pray the prayers that are in the prayer book, you'll learn the Apostles' Creed very fast, like very fast. Um, it's that repetition that keeps it before you. Now, uh, one more thing that I want to say is that St. Ambrose was famous for saying that the Apostles' Creed is a shield um, it, it, it keeps away kind of all the, um, the, the, the arrows of doubt and, and uh, deceit. And I think that's quite true. Um, 
Christians who are armed with creeds, when they come up against error, even errors in their own thinking, right? Because um, here's, here's the real problem. At the end of the day, you and I are plagued, plagued with false ideas about God. And if you don't think that, I would just encourage you to keep, keep at it. Um, because often I'll find this, that people who are deeply divided interiorly, right, who are committing the same sins over and over again, who are really struggling through life, um, not to get too psychological, but they often have at the core of their being a, a false God concept or a false God image um, that's very problematic for living life. It can often mean that you're kind of stunted in a certain sense. Um, and uh, so having that right belief is essential. Um, so. Why should you know these creeds? Well, I should know these creeds because they state the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. All right, let's all stand. It's one of my favorite parts of, of the catechism. Is you just sort of like, let's do it. What is the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Lord of the Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, please be seated. According to my watch, we have like five minutes left, and I thought we'd jump into this section on Holy Scripture uh, because it'll just get you thinking a little bit before, before this coming week. What is Holy Scripture? Holy Scripture is God's Word written, given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and His acts in human history, and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Okay, um, I'm just going to tell you right here. Um, I had the joy and privilege of being bamboozled into writing this section uh, and writing the initial, the initial drafts. Um, so, I mean, and I was woefully underpowered to do so. Uh, but I got, you know, some of you academics know this, that, that you know you're a real academic when you get a paperback that's all marked up with brutal comments. And you think to yourself, that was awesome. Can I please, can we do that again? because that was amazing. Uh, that's, that's a sign of a real academic. Um, and so I sent in these drafts to Jim Packer over fax, which is the only way he could take it. He didn't have an email. Um, and he'd send them back with all these comments, you know. And, and I remember thinking, like, that was the coolest thing that I think has ever happened to me, because it was, it was, it was helpful comments. Um, and then when this all got presented before the bishops, it was a great, a great joy. Um, but let me just say that at the center of all, Angl of all Anglican doctrine, and we would say of all Christian doctrine, is Scripture. Um, Holy Scripture is God's Word written, given by the, the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and His acts in human history. So, Scripture contains both the kind of record of God's acts, um, but also uh, contains doctrine. Let's be clear about that, that Scripture contains uh, right doctrine, and is therefore right, because it is God's Word written, uh, the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Um, this is very technical language, but it's, it's the right language to have. 
which is that Scripture constitutes the final authority. Now, you might ask, how does that work, right? Doesn't it have to be mediated by some sort of judge who determines what is biblical and what is not? And I would say to you, of course. But by what standard do they judge? Scripture. Um, and, and I would say that the, one of the things that's distinctive about Anglicanism, or I don't even know it's that distinctive, is that we, we reject the idea wholesale that anyone has the ability to sort of create Christian doctrine de novo apart from Scripture. Okay? It just doesn't happen. All doctrine, properly speaking, is scriptural. Um, and, and this actually is something I touched on in, um, in Christ Church 101. Anglicans hold that Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation which is not just sort of like a nice thing to say. It's, it's really important. It says this, that I cannot, nor can our bishop, nor can anyone who walks the earth command you to believe something for your salvation that is not biblical. Um, I, we can't make up doctrines and say, well, you must believe this in order to go to hell, in order to go to heaven, right? Like, we can't do that and won't do it. Um, the other thing I'd say to you is that there are a lot of pious things that people believe, okay? Lots of things that people believe, but they're not biblical and therefore cannot be required for salvation. Um, so I'm, I'm really intent on this. This is one of the reasons I'm still an Anglican. Go ahead. Yep. Great one. Um, okay, well, let's just jump right in. So uh, Roman Catholicism holds uh, two main Marian doctrines as... Uh, as of the faith, de fide is what it's called in, 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 um, in Catholicism, uh, and that means that in order for a person to be saved, they have to believe that doctrine. And these were proclaimed in uh, the 1870s and in, the eight, and in 1954, of all things. And they're the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary and the Assumption of Mary. Now, I will tell you that at least in the most basic statements, these are doctrines which are quite ancient, actually, this idea that um, that, that Mary either never committed sin. I mean, they go back to early centuries. Right? There are people who believe this, but it's not universal by any standards. Um, the assumption of the doctrine goes way back, right? Um, there are fifth and sixth century accounts of it, which you know, may be specious, but people believe them, right? Um, and so I think one of the things I'd say is, well, look, Christians are at total freedom to believe those things, but no church has the authority to define them so tightly as to uh, deny people eternal salvation for denying those doctrines. Okay, does that make sense? Like, so that's one, one thing. Um, on the Protestant side, well, there would be lots of things, right? Um, like double predestination or… But see, the problem is no Protestant sits there and says, you must believe this in order to be saved. Because a real Protestant will always say, well, the only thing that matters is faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. But Anglicans go a step further. We actually say that, that one must believe the faith. It's not just have faith in Jesus Christ as, an, as, a, as a habitus, but to actually believe the faith. Um, now, it's both, right? I think we can say it's both, um, but that's, that's an example that I'd just sort of say. Like, you know, Protestants don't go around saying, you must believe this in order to be saved. I mean, the only thing that a, that a good Protestant will ever say is, you must put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And rightly so, because that's right. Um, but it's, 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 this is aimed primarily at those that would define further than Scripture, okay? Um, all right. What books are contained in Holy Scripture? The 39 books of the Old Testament 
and the 27 books of the New Testament together form the whole of Holy Scripture. Um, this is to say that the canon of Scripture, those books that are in the official list, are 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 in the New. Um, this is a good question to answer pairing to memorize. It's sort of like fun, you know. You, know, you could sort of teach your kids this, and they'll be very proud of themselves. It's like, how many books are in the Old Testament? It's like, 39, Dad. It's like, that's right. How many are in the New Testament? 27. That's right. So, it's like really good stuff. But I'd say that uh, this is important because um, other churches have attempted to add books to the canon of Scripture, um, and this is rejected over and over again, uh, primarily because they're sort of being called up as sort of a, a canonical scriptural witness to certain doctrines, okay, uh, that, that do not have uh, the kind of, um, gr- the kind of um, uh, how should I put it, gravity of Old Testament and New Testament books. Okay, so Anglicans hold that the whole of Holy Scripture in the canon is these two, uh, these two canons of Scripture, so the, which is one whole canon of, uh, of the Old and New Testaments. All right, one more question. What is the Old Testament? The Old Testament proclaims God's creation of all things, mankind's original disobedience, God's calling of Israel to be His people, His law, wisdom, and saving deeds, and the teaching of His prophets. The Old Testament bears witness to Christ, revealing God's intention to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. Um, so, one of the things I want to say is that um, this is probably your, your kind of classic American uh, heresy, um, which is uh, actually not anything new. It's actually quite ancient. Um, this is the, kind of the idea that um, the God of the Old Testament is a, is, a, is, a, is a God wholly different from the God of the New Testament. Uh, there was an ancient heretic, and if, if you know his name, I'm going to give you brownie points. Uh, some of you do know. Yeah, <laughs> his name is Martian, uh, and, and I always remember that because it's like, well, he must have been from Mars, uh, but um, Martian the Martian. Um, and uh, basically, it's this idea that, hey, look, you know, you see these vast differences, you know, and, and how do you account for that? Well, the way that, the way that Orthodox Christianity accounts for it is by saying the Old Testament bears witness to Christ. which is a very brave thing to say, actually, at the end of the day, but it is, it is true, nonetheless, right, that uh, the Old Testament bears witness to Christ, um, revealing God's intention to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. Um, and so, one of the things we're going to talk about next week is how it is that, uh, that uh, not just Anglicans in, as, as a church believe and, you know, read Scripture, but how Christians read Scripture, right, which is to read so that um, as St. Augustine says, the old is in the new revealed, and the new is in the old concealed. Um, this is to say that, uh, that, uh, that we actually believe that um, uh, in accounting for the acts of God in history, Scripture is not just recording the acts of God the Father or some God between the gaps, but the triune God in whom we believe. Um, so, so, one of the fun activities, and I would encourage you to do this in the coming weeks, you know, Read Scripture with an eye, especially in the Old Testament, for finding Christ in the Old Testament. Um, one of the things the Brothers Fellows are going to spend a lot of time doing uh, this semester is looking for Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and I kind of think about, about this as a scavenger hunt, um, and just in funny terms, but, uh, but it's, it's become one of my favorite things to do is just read the Old Testament with an eye to this. Um, and we'll talk about that next week. So um, enjoy. Uh, we'll get. Yeah, one question's great. Sure. 
Yes. Yep, happy to. Uh, the question is, why is the Apostles' Creed used in daily prayer and the Nicene Creed used in, in liturgy? As best as I can understand it, uh, it was not common use to recite the Nicene Creed in Sunday liturgies or in the Eucharistic liturgy until, you know, in terms of history quite late, you know, 11th, 12th centuries. Um, and it was by no means universal. Um, however, um, the Apostles' Creed was used quite early uh, by, uh, by Christians in their daily, uh, in their daily prayers, um, particularly in, the, in monastic congregations where they were continually reciting the Apostles' Creed as a part of the, the sevenfold Benedictine office. Um, part of the reason for this is that it's sort of, uh, uh, well, let me just put it this way. The Nicene Creed is, uh, is an invective um, against heretics. The Apostles' Creed is much more uh, kind of, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the creed that we're baptized into, right? And it's still the creed that we recite in, at baptisms. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it's recited for that reason. And so when the, when the daily offices are written, uh, the, the move is made to make sure that they're retained in the daily office, both morning and evening prayer as essential parts of those offices. Um, that's a great thing, by the way, because, uh, it, again, it aids in uh, memorization, um, it actually kind of, well, let me, we've got just like a little bit more time. I'll squeeze it out. Okay. One of the things that you should pro- that I like to think about as, as we recite the, the Apostles' Creed on a daily basis is of it sort of like soldiers standing there and reciting their, their standing orders. Any of you served in the military? Okay. We have a bunch of nonviolent types around here. Uh, yeah, there you are. You, you memorize things, right? You spend a lot of time in the military memorizing stuff. Why? Yeah, it, it forms habits, right? Habits of thinking, habits of believing. So the Apostles' Creed is very effective in this, and, and I would say that, um, you know, kind of the idea is you get it so deep in your psyche that, that you can't think otherwise. Um, and this is a good thing because it's the truth of Scripture. All right, thank you all. We'll pick up next week.